0: Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Demena. and here with me, as always, is the very dynamic Elliot
1: Shibley. Dynamic, I like it. You're very dynamic. Check out Minivan Memories. I always, always minima, have trouble minima, saying minima, that. Minivan Memories. <laughs> and also check out Little Passports and check out an audible trial, all of which are located on our website. We have a whole separate tab dedicated to our partners and our affiliates. And down at the bottom of that, we also have uh, a few recommended travel products that are kind of cheaper on Amazon right now. And if you click that link, even if you don't buy one of those items, it still goes a little bit to helping us.
0: Yeah, it would be very much appreciated. So today, today is to me a very special podcast. Um, we have on a guest who climbed the tallest peak on every continent. That includes Mount Everest. He has kayaked many rapids through the United States and abroad, including the entire Colorado River. He has led students from a blind school in Tibet on an expedition in the Himalayas. But what makes all of these accomplishments even more incredible was that when he was 14, he went fully blind. Truly one of the most inspirational and exceptional people i have ever had the privilege of speaking to and i really think that you're really that you're going to enjoy this podcast so without further introduction please give it up for our next guest eric weinmayer
1: welcome to the traveler's blueprint start designing your next adventure Welcome to The Traveler's Blueprint. Bob and I are extremely excited to have you on. Uh, We have both read your book, uh, No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. The first time Bob and I actually heard about you, Bob's a huge Joe Rogan fan of his podcast, and therefore I am a big Joe Rogan fan. Um, And so Jeff Evans, who led your expedition on Everest, was talking about your journey. And... That kind of piqued Bob and I's interest, like, who is this guy? Because we had never heard of Eric Weinmayer. And we decided to get your now third book, and we read it, and it's sort of like an autobiography of your life before Everest, during Everest, and what you've accomplished since Everest. Um, So with that, we're very excited to have you on and talk about all things travel and Eric Weinmayer-related.
2: Nice. So I'm going to, this podcast will be setting the record straight from all the lies that Jeff told on the Rogan.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there are many. Jeff, Jeff seems to embellish. Oh no.
2: (laughs) Embellish? Jeff Evans? No way. Everything's, everything begins with, and there I
0: was.
2: (laughs) No, me and Jeff have been climbing together for a long time. We're like, we're like brothers. So we like to tease each other. We have stories that we like to talk about and I have my version and he has his version um one of them is um when we were climbing El Capitan way back in the 90s together um Jeff fell asleep on a ledge maybe like 15 feet below me and I had this little box of tic-tacs in my hand and I was trying to aim my my tic-tac drop my friend was getting my arm like perfectly situated to try to drop tic-tacs in Jeff's open mouth as he was sleeping (laughs) and a few times I think I connected because I heard like You know, like choking sounds down there. And um, and in Jeff's uh, version, I was the guy that he was dropping Tic Tacs in my mouth. So I don't know how these uh, these variations uh, get going.
1: (laughs) So you were actually the one leading him on it. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's another misnomer. Jeff leading me, please.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you have you have some incredible accomplishments um, and. In your book, you mentioned about being an inspiration to others and beyond no barriers. And it's not necessarily that you've climbed Everest or kayaked the Grand Canyon, but this is just kind of what you wanted to do. And can you talk a little bit about your early life when you actually first went blind and the first, those first, I guess, weeks, months of acclimating to that and understanding what this means for the rest of your life?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, so I was I well, my p- family traveled a lot when I was a kid, you know, we my dad was uh worked for a pharmaceutical company. He was actually a marine uh before I was born and uh but he got assigned to Hong Kong and uh we moved over to Hong Kong and I think that got like a taste for adventure because I could I was born legally blind, so I could barely see like trying to run around Hong Kong this concrete jungle um trying to Um, catch the bus. And I could barely see the numbers on the bus. Actually, I couldn't see the numbers on the bus. So I'd have to ask people and, and then like, you'd just be exploring up in the jungle above Hong Kong. You know, there's this incredible middle part of Hong Kong that's undeveloped where it's just like jungle trails up the mountain. So we'd be back there exploring and you'd come across like some incredible temple just in the jungle. And uh, it, it, I think that really sparked a lot of my adventure. We had a a, a boat that we'd cruise around the South China Sea um, to different islands and we'd trek and camp on those islands. Um, but but then I moved back to boring Connecticut <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I went totally blind. And, you know, like, I don't know how even to describe it. I mean, because. When bad things happen to you, you can't imagine that this is you that it's happening to, right? Like you hear about bad things happening to other people, but you just can hardly imagine when it's you. It doesn't seem real. And, uh, you know, so it was more like just stunned, being stunned. Like, is this, what does this mean? Is this a death sentence? And what does that even mean? Like, you know, what, what is my life going to be like? You know, it was just like so much darkness, not just blindness, but darkness in terms of uncertainty um, that I just couldn't even fathom it you're just you're completely overwhelmed by what's happened to you um, and how old are you, are you don't know how to respond I was uh, 14
1: okay and that's even a that's normally a tough transition for folks that haven't gone blind
2: <laughs> but for me barely being able to see and then going totally blind and I worried and then- so much about like all the things I would miss out on you know um, all the friendships and all the awkwardness of being blind you know like how could I function? You know, how, how would I go out on dates? Like, how would I cruise around with my friends, you know, um, just, you know, trying to listen to my friends and trying to follow them or, you know, in blindness etiquette, you take somebody's elbow, but like, oh man, that's so uncool when you're a teenager to like hold somebody's elbow. And am I going to look like an idiot? And are people going to look down on me? And, man, it's just so much flooding into you, you know, that you you just feel so awkward and alienated and lonely.
0: And Eric, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, from your book, I believe I remember you saying that one of the first trips that you went on after, after you became fully blind was to South America, to Peru, to Machu Picchu. And doing that hike is maybe the first step that sort of snowballed into, you know, everything you've done since.
2: Yeah, well, I was studying the Incas in history class and my dad, uh, as a Christmas present, I think actually maybe maybe it was me that introduced the idea. I said, Hey, we should go do this thing called the Inca Trail that I've heard people do. And you come into Machu Picchu, which is like this ancient abandoned city of the Incas. And um my dad said yeah and, and he, he went out and found this outfitter and they they, you know, they actually said, "Okay, yeah, if you guys can guide him, like we can, we can try it." And I didn't know how to hike at that time. I'd never been hiking or anything. I'd been hiking before that when I could see, but um, after blindness, I didn't know how I'd do it. And I would, when we went to Peru hiking over the Inca Trail, I just had a cane, and my dad would uh, grab my neck and he would try to like steer me. You know, we didn't know what we were doing, or, or he would sometimes grab like the waistband of my shorts and try to pull me left and right. And I would just be stumbling along this trail and thinking how God awful this experience was. It was so hard, you know, tripping over every step. And then I would tumble off the trail and my dad would have his hand like kind of wrapped up in my shorts and he would go flying down the side of the trail as well with his video camera, like holding up with his left hand, you know, just both of us tumbling down the side of the trail. And all I really wanted to do at that time was to keep up with my brothers. I had two older brothers, and I wanted to be cool and have fun with them. And I was always just stumbling along trying to keep up with those guys. <laughs> and um, I don't think I got the reward until uh, we got to the gate. I think it's called the Gate of the Sun. and The Sun Gate. The Sun Gate, yeah. And it's yeah. just beautiful. And you're like over Machu Picchu, and I could hear the city. You know, blind people use echolocation sound vibrations, you know, to to hear the valley below you. And I could hear that valley because it's all rock. So it's really percussive, you know, it's really, you know, sound just echoes off that tiered city and coming down in the trail into Machu Picchu. I remember feeling like an explorer, just like, wow, this is this is uh, such hardship, right? Stumbling for three days over this over these passes, long days because I was hiking so slow. Um, and and hungry and tired, but the reward of coming across this incredible city. um, And that was the gift, you know, like the gift of the explorer. And uh, I remember just that grabbing me so powerfully, you know, thinking like, wow, at the time, I didn't think that would be my life or anything. But I thought that would be such a cool way to live.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did become your life, right? And You've since gone on to hike the most iconic mountains in the entire world, which is is fascinating and then specifically Mount Everest is something that most people you know only dream of hiking or, or fantasize of hiking one day and and you accomplished it and I'm just really curious about I guess the thought process going into that hike, you know knowing you have this handicap and and how you you planned on overcoming it.
2: Well, part of it was my desire to want to keep pushing and to be around people. Um, you know, at first, I don't know if I was that super connected with the outdoors. I was connected with people. Like, I wanted to be around my brothers. I wanted to be around my friends. I wanted to keep up with people. Um, I wanted to do things. I wanted to interact in the world. I didn't want to be left behind, like, sitting in this dark place, you know, just, you know, listening to books, you know. I love reading, but, I mean, I wanted to be out there. So, um, it was a desire to be out there and then it was also beginning to learn the tools. So I, I came across trekking poles, these long trekking poles uh, and eventually um, Lecky trekking poles started building special trekking poles for me. They're really long, super long. So I can feel way below me when I'm descending a trail Um, and I can shorten them when I'm going uphill. And then uh, we started experimenting with bear bells. Somebody would jingle a bell in front of me. So I'd have a little more of an audio in front of me and then how to communicate with me. Hey, you know, uh, well like Jeff Evans divides, uh, trails into three categories. Um, the first is a pissed off fall. That's like some blood, but you probably get up with a skinny, um, trauma or hospital fall. That's probably some like broken bones or he'll say dead fall. So three categories for the consequences, like death fall on the right, hospital fall on the right, pissed off fall on the right. You know, so we would develop this funny little language, you know, but to tell me what was in front of me. And then I started learning how to navigate using and feeling with those trekking poles, like two white canes in front of me. And it was a whole process of like learning how to get comfortable in a really uncomfortable environment. So it wasn't like, you know, you say in this unrealistic way, like I'm going to climb Everest someday. It's a slow process of, of what... You know, your question of what is possible beginning to emerge in your life. And it wasn't until I was probably 30, like I'd been climbing a lot of mountains and rock climbing and ice climbing and skiing, that uh, I decided I thought Everest was a real possibility. Uh, And then you talk it out loud, you say it out loud, and it's like you sound like an idiot. You know, you're like, oh God, I'm saying this thing finally. And, you know, it sort of releases it into the world, the idea, and it becomes a real thing. Um, But yeah, there were just so many question marks regarding Everest, um, because it was obviously bigger and harder than anything I had done.
1: Yeah. Well, your life seems to have been, since you were 14, kind of question marks always in front of you. And it's just probing around to kind of find an answer for those questions. And Everest is just another probing situation where you've got to figure it out step by step and... It seems like you've taken that approach to literally everything you've done from all of your adventures, but also to your family with uh, adopting Arjun from Nepal. That was not an easy process, but you and Ellie kind of took that step by step. And uh, in your book, you mention your stepbrother, Mark, and how that was a process trying to connect with him and bring him back from the brink. Um, So it just, you have been able to apply this. And I I think it's a mentality that not everyone has. And it's just chasing the unknown and knowing that you're going to hit obstacles, but you just have to figure out a solution around them. And you've had support networks that have helped you with that. As you mentioned in your book, like your family was a big one. Uh, Jeff Evans seems to have been a big one on a lot of your expeditions. Uh, now Jeff Ulrich with your skiing trips. So it's been, it's as I mentioned earlier, it's quite inspirational to have that perspective on life. Well, thank you. I mean, I do think some
2: of the things I've done are you know pretty big. But honestly, I think you tapped into it really. I, somehow I've been really lucky to connect with great people. My wife uh, helped me through the adoption process with Arjun. Without her, I could have never done this. Um, Climbing Everest, friends like Jeff, friends like PV, all my teammates, you know, were there. You know, they completely laid it out there for me. They stepped up in a thousand ways. Kayaking the Grand Canyon, you know, I had this amazing team of people who believed in me and taught me everything they knew. Um, So for me, when I look back at all the extraordinary things, I say, okay, yeah, sure. I had to have an open mindset that was willing to take these things on but without my family without my friends uh without my wife i mean like none of them would have been possible and i think blindness sort of beats humility into you and you in a way it becomes a reverse gift because you realize how much how blessed you are how much gratitude there is uh for the people that come into your life that you know help illuminate bits and pieces of that map going forward so, yeah, for sure, you tapped into it. It's my support systems.
0: Yeah, that's really incredible. I, I really like that term, reverse gift. That's that's the first time I've ever heard that. I I really like that. Um, But do you mind if we sort of transition into the actual physical elements of Everest? Yeah. This is something it. that, you know, it's hard to understand what it's actually like. You can see it, you know, in videos and you could watch movies about it and documentaries. But... I'm really curious to hear your perspective of climbing Mount Everest because, you know, without vision, you really had to be in tune to everything else around you. And so I'm sure it was enhanced. And I'm I'm just really interested in, in your understanding or your perception of climbing this mountain.
2: Well, first of all, you know, Everest wasn't wasn't my first mountain. Right. So, like, you don't want to necessarily be learning a lot. As you're climbing Everest, you know, you want these things to be somewhat comfortable by the time you get to that big experience. Now, of course, there's going to be things that are new no matter what. But I mean, like trekking to base camp up this trail. Yeah, sure. The days were long and hard, but I had trained like crazy. I mean, I would run up the tallest building in Denver and uh, with a big pack on, you know, so I could like charge up the trail. I'd learn to use my trekking poles. I'd learn to listen to people's footsteps and the bell in front of me. So, um, the, this was not my first like ball game, you know, but then you get above ice, uh, above base camp and there's the kumbu icefall. Now that's just straight up like a blind person's worst nightmare. It's, it's <laughs> like, you know, if you wanted to punish a blind person or kill him, you would throw him in the middle of the kumbu icefall and say, good luck. Uh, like imagine, um, two and a half thousand feet of jumbled up boulders of ice of every size imaginable collapsing and tumbling uh, down the mountain like a river of ice and uh, or, or take a glacier and explode a bomb in the middle of it. It's just, you know, every step was different. Every step could kill you. Uh, you're walking on this little zigzaggy trail, like the width of your boot. You're zigzagging on little snow bridges that are the width of your boot with crevasse on both sides. You're uh, stepping from boulder to boulder. They're ice boulders. They're kind of shifting and rolling under your feet. Sometimes you're having to jump across crevasses. My friends would tap with their trekking poles where they wanted me to land, and I had to land in those little chipped-out boot marks. Um, uh, then there are ladders. Um, the Sherpas lay ladders. Four, four or five ladders lashed together with Sherpa like boat twine. And you got to actually walk across these ladders with like hundreds of foot crevasses on the ladders kind of swing in the wind. And, uh, um, and you have to lock your crampons over the rungs of those of those ladder rungs. And so it's anyway, it's the Kumbu ice fall was definitely the hardest thing by times 10 that I'd ever done. And the first time I didn't even get through the ice fall, I got about halfway or third of the way through And I just thought I'm going to be imprisoned. I'm going to die in the icefall. And I came back down to base camp just completely thrashed. (laughs) And and then you got to wake up and you got to do it all again the next day. So yeah, Everest is one of these things where you have to like go to sleep and you have to be resilient enough and um, fit enough to get your butt kicked and then, you know, maybe take a day off, but then go back and push the wall, the barrier a little higher up the mountain. Uh, the f- second time I did the ice fall, it took me 13 hours. Wow! Uh, I came staggering into Camp 1 at 20,000 feet. Um, and th- the irony of it is that I made it over the ice fall, and I was coming along a flat glacier, and I tripped over this little crack with my crampon point. And my friend tried to reach out and grab me, but he had a ski pole in his hand. He bashed me in the nose with the oh. handle of his ski pole. So I came into camp with—I I can swear to this day that my nose is bent and broken. I think I broke my nose that day. Um, and I was there's just blood pouring down my face and uh I laid in my tent and I was I I felt like I might pass out. My P V, our team leader, had to take my crampons off my feet. I just laid there in my tent and uh I was just completely thrashed.
1: <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, your nose doesn't look crooked. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> but this is also my first time meeting you. <laughs> But there, there had to have been some kind of reward, some kind of exhilaration that you made it across the ice pass.
2: Well, yeah, and then you come down, you make got to go down the icefall and hang out at base camp for and rest up now, and then you got to go up to camp one again, and um, and up to camp two, and then all the way back down to base camp and rest, and then you go back up to camp three. So you wind up going through the icefall ten times. Not just once. So that blind person's nightmare, I had to do 10 times. Oh, I think wow. the second time I got like 10 hours. Uh, the next time I think like maybe eight or nine hours, then eight hours, then seven hours. Uh, my last time up the icefall, um, I, I think it was like four hours and 50 minutes. And I'm wow. charging up the icefall. It was like I I knew it. I knew it under my feet. I knew the crevasses where I had to jump. I knew the ladders. I actually re- started learning how to lock my crampon points over the rungs and like relax on the ladders. The ladders are the place I could rest because they were actually consistent. Um, so um, by the time I crossed the icefall that last time, I felt great. And uh, and that's all part of the acclimatization process, right? You're actually building more hemoglobin, more oxygen, more ability for your body to absorb more oxygen. That's why you have to spend so much time up there.
1: Okay. Uh, so in your, in your book, you mentioned that some of these expeditions that take not novices, but people that have been training for Everest, but haven't hiked anywhere else, they're learning how to cross those ladders over those hundred to 200 foot crosses. Is that right?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, that's the blessing and the curse of the modern world. I sound old when I talk about the modern world, but um, (laughs) it, it is like people, there's nobody like, well, most of the time there's not um somebody standing at the gates of everest saying you deserve to go through this gate and you don't in a way if you did have somebody doing that it's dangerous you know even nepal has tried to it, over a few different times try to ban blind and disabled people from climbing everest because they think it's gotten out of control and it kind of feeds into a little bit of their superstition um okay. you know like uh you know they think like you know maybe with the with karma like if you're blind you've done something in a past life so that's bad maybe or murder or something and you know going up onto the mountain uh, you know if you're not pure uh, then the mountain will um, will curse the the world with earthquakes and avalanches and all the terrible things that happen in the world somehow blind people are blamed for that so they've tried <laughs> to ban people but for the most part those haven't worked right so in the modern world you can make your own choices and and that's very cool and there have been some people like I met this billionaire. He's like, "Yeah, I made a billion dollars, and uh, and then I uh, that wasn't a challenge anymore. So I decided I wanted to climb, and if I was going to climb, I'm going to climb the tallest mountain in the world, and I wanted to do it quickly because I don't have time. And so I hired the best guides in the world, and I trained, and uh, and I got up Everest. But I mean, to me, that's that's not the that's not taking that that's not what a summit is to me. The summit for me is like you you. Through the struggle, through the preparation, through the connection with your team and learning about this beautiful place and actually taking the long road, you 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 connect and you earn these gifts like we we're talking about. Sometimes they're reverse gifts. And th- that's what the summit is. The summit is the gift that like that you've earned. And so so I'm just not a believer in that fast track idea. Because sure, you can survive the mountain, but you're not necessarily going to get the gifts that you might get if you take the time to really flourish in that environment versus just survive it
0: yeah you can't buy that appreciation right yeah yeah i disagree with that way too and that's an accolade versus an experience right Mm -hmm. yeah it's i i I believe they closed everest this past year is that correct due to i don't want to say people like that but people that were unappreciative of the mountain and you know the natural environment and were leaving garbage along the trail
2: well they've closed it over the years as from time to time like because of the earthquakes and that there was a huge terrible avalanche that came down and killed some people uh so yeah they've closed it over the years but they know they never uh, closed it to you know to the average climber unless there've been those natural disasters okay uh but they did close it to um uh, for a time for blind and disabled people, <laughs> which is wow. just sort of, sort of bizarre, but, uh, yeah. I want to be culturally sensitive because I love Nepal and I love, but every, every culture, even our own, you know, America maybe right now being maybe the worst, uh, culprit, you know, so there's, there's, there's beautiful things. And then there's things that, uh, that, that hold us back. And so, yeah, that's, that sort of cultural stigma of, uh, of disability is, uh, something that, uh, Nepal needs to push a little bit more.
1: Right. Everest is one of those things that even if you are have trained your entire life, it is still an unforgiving environment that can spit out the best trained athletes and climbers. And so to still be able to accomplish that and ascend Everest and come back down alive without any I I don't know if you mentioned this in the book at all, but it didn't seem like he got hurt at all. Minus the punch in the The nose. The punch
2: in the nose, yeah. Um, No, I actually held out okay. Uh, I had a guy on my team, Sherm Bull. He's an awesome guy. When uh, he summited with me, he was 64 years old, and he summited with his son, Brad Bull, who was in his 30s at the time, and they were the first American father-son team to reach the summit. But Sherm had tried the mountain five times, five times. The first time, I don't think he... I think he got sick or something. Uh, One of the times um, they were in a tent and they were cooking food on a stove and the stove blew up and like blew him out of the tent. He slid down the mountain and landed in a crevasse. uh, And that ended the trip. I think another time he took a massive fall and had to be uh, carried down the mountain. Um, And uh, so anyway, it was his fifth try. Um, And he at the time was the oldest man at 64 to, to reach the summit. And I said, um I said, Sherm, you know, you're the oldest man to summit Everest. So that's really cool. He goes, Well, it's not like I wanted to be the oldest man to summit Everest. So I was just getting old <laughs> trying time after time. <laughs> anyway, but he he charged at the summit and he did so great. But yeah, so we were really incredibly fortunate to be able to summit my first time on the mountain. Um, yeah, most people it takes them two or three tries. So yeah, there was yeah. a lot of fortune on top of us.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I don't know if you saw recently that due to the warm uh, climate that Nepal is currently having, a lot of the glacier is melting away and it's some of the lowest snowfall and snowpack that they've had in a while. And it's revealing all of these dead bodies that have come off of Everest and been kind of pushed down by the snow.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of dead bodies up there and people die all the time on the mountain. It's one of the paradoxes of climbing like you're passing dead frozen bodies and it's
1: like that's a sign <laughs>
2: it's really grim you know and um i don't know i don't even know how to think about it really um it's not like that's exciting or anything passing by dead bodies it's scary uh and you feel for those folks you know um i always had this idea that i could climb everest and if i couldn't make it to the summit i could turn back gracefully like i wouldn't necessarily like in the movies you have to like fall down in the snow and die you could turn back and you could go down to your life and your family and your friends would love you. And they'd say, awesome. They'd slap you on the back and they'd say, awesome, dude, you gave it your all. And that's the way it is. You didn't make it. Um, I didn't think I had to die in the process. I never was that dramatic, you know, where it was like summit or die. That's a dangerous attitude,
0: right? It's, well, I, it, the one thing I loved about your book was just your attitude towards things like this. You know, your training—you were very methodical, and that's something that I aspire to be. Um, and you, you have this mental perseverance, perseverance when you're when you're focusing on something, and that's just that's really hopefully you know something you and I could talk about now that I would love to take away um, training myself, and not necessarily you know Mount Everest, but just my own personal tasks and accomplishments and things that I want to focus on. um, For you, when you have something in front of you that you want to accomplish, what is, I guess, the first step in your mental process?
2: Well, I think I learned a lot of stuff from my family, maybe through osmosis. I mean, my dad was just so focused in his life. He was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He was the captain of his football team. And he's just said, look, like none of us wine mares are all that smart, but, um, you have a certain, uh, lens that we can really focus in on and, uh, and really target our perception. And, uh, so I think I've always sort of been like that, like kind of a dog with a bone, just chewing on that bone and never getting enough. I wanted, you know, I'll set my sights on something and, uh, and it's always a similar process. Um, you build a great team. You pick the right people. Um, and that's a science and an art, you know, because, um, you know, you're not picking everybody, you obviously want skills around you and you want talent and you want world-class people, but you don't want like people with massive egos and things like that. You want to, you know, be able to connect with those people and they want to have their hearts in the right place. So yeah, that's a whole thing we could talk about for hours, like pick my team, the people I want to put my life in, their hands and they're going to put their life back in my hands. And then you go out on this process together and you start training and, and innovating and you sort of pioneering your way forward through all the barriers. And then bad things always happen along the way. uh, And you got to figure out how to take those bad things and, and kind of create a kind of energy around them to propel you forward, maybe sometimes in a slightly different path. Um, So anyway, I think I've learned that the experience, the process that you use to do these things um, if you understand the template or the framework of that process, you're much better prepared than um, just kind of blundering forward.
1: Yeah, I understand what you mean. With the with Everest, with the notion and that first seed that was planted to kayak the Grand Canyon, it kind of reminded me of a, a metaphor from physics. Uh, and I always liked physics in high school. And there's static friction and then there's friction. And static friction requires a lot more force to get initial momentum. And then once you have that momentum, you can kind of keep it and you need to apply less force and things get easier. And I think that's that can be applied to anything new that you ever want to do. Uh, whether it be kayaking the Grand Canyon, whether it be going for your first dance lesson for... Like ballroom or waltzing it's the unknown is scary, but taking your first step starts to shed light on it and then from there it's just continuing yeah and
2: that you, you there's such feelings of vulnerability in the beginning of just feeling like a total idiot such a gumby you know and uh, you just have to understand again all that's part of the process that's the way the brain works you just feel completely out of your element and uh, you just have to be able to accept those feelings um, in the beginning, and yeah. and uh, yeah, so I think knowing that process, knowing how your brain works, knowing how your brain really wants to just keep you safe, Um, like so you can't even trust your brain along the process. You know, you, on Everest there were so many times where my brain was just overwhelmed, and I wanted to, it, you know, it, it. My brain was telling me to turn back, yeah, go down. What are you doing? You know, you're hungry, you're tired, you're in this scary cold place, like, and and I would say to myself, like. I don't know, not to get too spiritual or anything, but like, I'm not the bio, I'm not the biology of my brain. My brain right now is, uh, is not me. Uh, like I'm something beyond that. And my brain is wanting to keep me safe. Um, because that's what the brain wants to do, right? It's, it's the fight or flight mechanism, but, um, that doesn't always steer you right. Sometimes that's, you know, the sort of monsters that are trying to gobble up your dreams, yeah. So I I, I yeah. learned that even your brain is not necessarily a trustworthy ally
1: always. <laughs> yeah. So I joke around with my wife a little bit because uh, like I'm not very I was never very good at ping pong. But when we first started dating, we would always go to her grandparents' house for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there would always be a ping pong tournament. And the first year I didn't play. And the second year I finally built up the courage to enter into this family tournament. And I mean, I got <laughs> whooped, but I felt more comfortable every year. And I, we still joke around about how people like to do what they're yeah. good at, but you don't get good at something by not doing right.
2: it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the way, I mean, like, uh, I mean, climbing, I always like loved it from the beginning, you know? Um, but, but yeah, you, you get into situations that are completely over your head, you know, like my first big mountain Mount, uh, well, Denali, they used to call it Mount McKinley, but it's Denali, the tallest mountain in in North America. You know, there are days that I'd be like slipping and sliding in the trail and like, like I get into my tent and I would cry, like literally physically cry. Like I can't, this is so hard. I don't know if I can wake up and do this all again tomorrow. Uh, but, yeah, it's something, you know, you wake up, you get that eight hours and you wake up and you say, OK, I'll 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 try again today and I'll give it my best. And uh, and if you can just kind of have that mental attitude of waking up every day and just realizing that there's going to be a lot of suffering um, at some point, you w- you know, you wind up on the top of the mountain. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of discipline and tricks that you do, I think, in your brain. My friend Chris Morris. He's a, one of my climbing partners from uh, a long time back. But he says, you know, when you stand at the bottom of a mountain, you look up um, if you're sighted and you can see this, this incredible mountain that just looks so daunting and impossible. And he's like, you know, you kind of have to almost do like a, a schizophrenia kind of thing in your brain where you actually have to convince yourself that you're this little puny human being that you're going to be able to stand on top of that thing at some point. You have what it takes to do that. He said it it honestly is like a gymnastic like a mental gymnastic that you do and it's not you know naivete or anything it's just like a a, a trick uh, a process that you that you use in your brain to kind of elevate yourself to believe that you can you know get through all those barriers you can get through all those potential pitfalls and you actually can you know ultimately stand on top of that thing um and I think that's a that's a gift if you can figure out how to do that.
1: Yeah. Being able to harness that. There was uh, actually, I think just yesterday, there was an article uh, in the New York Times about procrastination and how procrastination is, we know it's bad for us, but in a really backwards way, it's avoiding us. It's making us avoid future bad emotions. Like we know we're not going to be happy when we do that thing. So we don't do it. Yeah. And that, that's kind of like how the entire article is formed. And it's it was just really interesting to hear that and then start to realize, wow, it's just overcoming that and knowing that you're going to have a little bit of sadness, a little bit of anxiety. But once mm-hmm. it's done, it's done and then you're happy. Again. Yeah,
0: I think it also has to do with being accepting of failure. I think a lot of people are afraid of failure and, um, you know, they fail one time and they're completely discouraged and their spirit is torn. But if you can go into something and accept that you could fail or even better that you're going to fail, I think you can build on that. And then, you know, you, f- you come back fighting even stronger and and eventually you're going to, you know, you're going to accomplish something great.
2: I hate failure, I have to say. <laughs> I freaking hate failure. I was on this ice climb just weeks, a couple weeks ago, and it was so cold, so unbelievably cold. Our toes were frozen. So we had to go in this warming hut. Um, uh, Uh, and we uh, started a fire and we warmed our feet up in our socks. And then we started up the ice face, maybe like a, maybe an hour too late. And I was a hundred feet from the top and we had to turn back because of nighttime darkness. My friends had to see, and I hate that man, that it just, I, I can't stand it, but you, it's a paradox because you have to accept it too. You know, you can't cry over it. You know, it, it, once reality sets in, you go, okay, um, I'll figure out how to go back there and, try it again someday. And that procrastination thing, I think is fascinating too, because I think procrastination is a good thing. I think that's what you were saying in the article, because it, it, you know, it gives you the chance to kind of stew over things. And, uh, and a lot of good thoughts come to your brain as you're stewing, uh, in that delayed spot, you know, where you don't, you're not really willing to commit to something fully but I think the brain needs that time to kind of stew and be paralyzed and feel a bit overwhelmed um before you actually latch onto it and commit to 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 going for it. Uh I, I've every single adventure or every thing I've ever done, there's been a period of procrastination where you go, you know, I just don't know. I just don't know. And you just have to go through that too. That's another piece of the process I think that's inevitable.
1: Yeah. Well, I think this is a phenomenal point to transition because the beginning of your book, your very first chapter is you talking about going over Lava Falls in the (laughs) Grand Canyon. (laughs) And this, you tie the book out at the end with going over it and kind of completing it. But your process to actually be able to kayak the Colorado River had many, many failures that you wrote about. And... One of the big ones was in Latin America when you were kayaking that river. Was it that in Nicaragua?
2: Um, it was on the border between uh, Mexico and Guatemala. In Guatemala. It's in okay. southern uh, Mexico uh, called Chiapas.
1: Yes. And there was, I think the first time you went down there, you just felt defeated almost the whole time. And... There were just massive boils and obstacles throughout the entire trip, and you ended up going back. But can you talk a little bit about what you were feeling that first trip and how your mindset changed on the second trip?
2: Well, the first time I went, in kayaking terminology, there's something called cubic feet per second. It's how much volume a river flows at, and it was supposed to be at 40,000 cubic feet per second which is still a really big like kind of double the size of the grand canyon but it started raining and flooding and it turned into 140,000 cubic feet per second which is just this monster storm of water going down through this canyon and uh so a manageable river that you know something we thought would be manageable turned into um i mean the the waves get bigger in certain cases but also um It's just a storm of water going down and because there's so much energy, it creates boils, which are these like energy sources that come up from the bottom of the river and bubble up and like explode like a fountain over the surface of the water or these whirlpools. They're kind of mysterious. It's just crazy vortexes that swirl down. Some of them on that trip were nine feet deep. They would grab your tip of your boat. They would suck you down and... They would pull me out of my kayak and they would suck the shoes off your feet. They were so strong and they'd hold you down for like more than a minute. And uh, I survived one of those whirlpools and I literally, I mean, I, I don't want to be presumptuous and say um, that like I i got how like soldiers might feel, but like I really was like I had a, like PTSD. I couldn't get in my boat. I was having nightmares thinking, you know. I'm gonna get just sucked down one of these holes in, into oblivion. Uh and and uh there was a time where I kind of thought my Grand Canyon dream was dead because my brain was so shattered. Um it was my friend Rob Raker um uh, after kayaking um for the next year, but in like much smaller circumstances that convinced me to go back to the Usumacenta. Um and um but but really I think I was ready for the Usumacenta because Rob had taken me to the, um, what's called the national whitewater center. So uh, after that experience in the Usuma that first experience, I knew I needed to rebuild myself. So I literally went back to the drawing board. I went back to really baby tiny rapids. I'd lost my role, you know, which is your combat role. When you flip over, you got to flip yourself back over with your paddle. I'd lost all that. It was all in my brain. And, um, so, I had to like really go back to the start almost and rebuild myself. And so, after that year of trying to rebuild myself, I'd gotten a little bit further along the way. And uh, Rob suggested that we go back to the USU and uh, try it again. And uh, the next time I kayaked, uh, I paddled the whole thing, uh, not at that, quite at that monster storm of, of flow, but still survived it all, felt great. And uh, Rob said, Hey, you know, the river was different this year, but also you're different. And, uh, and And so, yeah, it turned into a different river because I was in a different place,
1: yeah that's incredible yeah that's it really is,
2: and there were crocodiles in that river too, by the way, that was exciting
1: <laughs> wait really
2: yeah we were we hacked onto the beach one night, and there was a ten foot crocodile that slithered <laughs> off the beach, and we're like, would, that makes you want to hit your roll and not necessarily swim,
1: yeah, oh man, I'm remember that I don't know if i I mean. So uh, I'm going to tell a quick story because when I was reading this, uh, it was late last year and my wife and I and a few friends, we went whitewater rafting in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I think the the biggest class was a class three. It might have been a class two at the level of flow it was going. Yeah. But there were just six of us. We were in an unguided raft, but we had guides kind of pointing us where to go. Nice. And there's this place on the yukagini called dimple rock and it was the biggest rapid that we were gonna hit and it was also the most technical so we had to hit it at the right angle and we i i will take full blame because i was designated as captain and we hit at the wrong angle and our boat just kind of went perpendicular to the direction of the water hit the rock flipped on us and we all just were like underwater for 10, 20, 30 seconds. And some of us got really banged up, but I think almost everyone on the raft was fairly shaken up. And just to think like, we couldn't even do that with six people fully aware of all of our surroundings. And that was a class three mm-hmm. and the Usama those whirlpools, those were what class six, maybe class seven.
2: Yeah. They are big, uh, they're big. I'd never, even Rob, my kayaking guide had never experienced anything like that. And, uh, that's just what you get when you get such a massive flow of water, you know, going through a narrow Canyon. Um, so yeah, um, people talk about this all the time with water, you know, I mean, the mountains are scary, but it's slow and methodical and you're plodding your way up the mountain. Uh, it's really hard. There are days where you're just completely crushed, but rivers i mean there you know something about water you know obviously the fact that you can't breathe underneath water you, you're drowning um and it's so violent you know for me being blind you go into this massive rapid and you're just engulfed by the loudest sound you've ever heard this cacophony of noise and then all this crazy so so you're blind and you're kind of deaf and all i have is the speaker a little speaker in my ear of my friend telling me you know hard left hard right charge through that hole that wave and, uh, you know, so much is happening to you, you know, waves and forces shoving you in every direction. And sometimes you're slamming into rocks and spinning around and you have to like react to all that. Um, it was definitely hard on the psyche. It was hard on my nervous system.
1: Um, and it's just stuff that you can't really prepare for.
2: To be honest with you, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I, I, I mean, just hands down.
1: Well, wow.
2: Yeah.
0: The one thing that I'm curious about, you did touch up on it on your book, but uh, first of all, I want to preface this by saying that I kayaking the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River, is something that I hopefully will do one day. It's something that I have dreamed of doing. Um, and so reading your book was, was pretty inspirational and sort of put it into context more than I um, originally anticipated or had an idea about. So now I kind of have a, a slightly better understanding of what I'm going to be getting myself into, which is a lot harder than I originally <laughs> thought.
2: You know, but here's a I'll put it in perspective a little bit for you. So you're not so freaked out. You know, I know maybe you aren't, but I mean, just a perspective, the Grand Canyon really, for the most part, a lot of it is paddling flat water. And then there's a lot of beautiful, fun rapids. If you have experience, like they're just, they're fun. They're big wave trains and maybe giant waves, but they're like the waves of a, a like a rolling ocean. Uh, and those aren't so bad. Then there's just maybe 10 Rapids that are really like the big scary ones that are like going into the ring with, you know, heavyweight boxing title. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, the 10 Rapids. So really, and, and some of those 10, I didn't even think were that bad. You know, they're just like a couple big massive hits and you blast through it. Even if you roll, you have time to roll up again. So... um but but there's a couple of them that are big, like lava. Lava, I mean, for sure, it was, for me, head and shoulders, the hardest and scariest.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, so lava, I guess, is a good example of this. One thing that I wanted to talk to you uh, in person about was how you oriented yourself, you know, after you flipped over um, and you came back to the surface and you're just stuck in the middle of a rapid. It's loud. It's you know, you're, you're, you're being thrashed all over the place. You have walls on either side in some areas. How did you orient yourself and, and figure out which direction you were going?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the challenge of blind kayaking, right? Cause you get knocked over and you roll up and when you roll up, oftentimes you don't really know where you're facing, right? I have no visual reference, so I can't tell where I'm facing. And um, so a lot of times, you know, I would wind up going sideways through a rapid or backwards through a rapid. Um, I mean, there are some clues of trying, you know, to orient yourself. I, and that's what I worked on for six, seven years as a kayaker, you know, like, okay, maybe in the afternoon, the sun is down the Canyon. And, uh, so the sun's in your face. So the wind's blowing up the Canyon, or you can hear the walls like on both sides, or you can hear the holes of the rapids or the rocks below you. And, and so there's there's, there's things that are giving you indicators, um, through the feeling under your boat. But yeah, I mean, it's without eyeballs. Yeah. I mean, you just sort of have to be ready for every, everything. The key was the bomber roll. Just even if you come up backwards, you just, you get knocked over again, you wait, the river will eventually release you and you roll up. And, uh, so as long as you have that bomber roll, um, you're way safer than swimming.
1: When you acquire a good combat role, does it help to build confidence?
2: Big time. Oh my gosh, yeah. If you know you can roll up, you are you are way accelerated in the game. If you have a terrible shaky roll, then yeah, you're going to go into every rapid scared.
1: All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, isn't that how, uh, this is a side tangent that I hope to come back to later, but Lonnie, uh, he started out Kayaking by just doing what a a thousand combat roles in his pond,
2: yeah. And I think uh, Lonnie just fortunately has this incredible brain and mind for kayaking. I I don't think I quite had my head wrapped around it and the fear of it and um, how hard it was. But Lonnie really seemed to have this incredibly perfect mindset for kayaking. Um, maybe it was due to the fact that he was in the military and you know, he had all these experiences like getting trapped in the, you know, bottom of a submarine. And, uh, as it, as a submarine went down, it started compressing and he was, um, like trapped in there for like 30 hours or something like that. Like where he couldn't move, people had to slide food into him. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, so maybe it was hardships like that, or maybe he was just wired that way. You know, he went blind, uh, but cause he got shot in the face with a, a shotgun. They were Turkey hunting. And, um, he, he took a stick and he shoved it down his throat because he had all this blood pouring down his throat and that kept his, uh his esophic, you know, his windpipe open so that he could continue to breathe. He would have, it would have clogged up with blood and he would have suffocated if he uh, hadn't done that. So just Lonnie has something that enables him to, in these moments of fear and crisis to just stay totally calm. And yeah, he's got a bomber role. So um Lonnie, I'd definitely say is a better better mind for kayaking than i do (laughs) well
1: and i think the whole story of how you met him was interesting because it was the second time you were kayaking the usama and you were on your way back to the states yeah and wasn't it rob that saw the headline that uh the first guy blind guy kayaked the grand canyon yeah and you were in the midst of your training at that point thinking that you would be the first one and it, it was just funny so that at that point you're like oh man Do I, I I'm, 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 yeah, (laughs) but then you decided to meet him and that was, that interaction was really cool. And then you actually did it. Lonnie joined you on your trip down the Grand Canyon.
2: Yeah, because yeah, at first you feel threatened by competition or something like that, but then you, you know, one realize, you know, this is what the world should be doing, right? The doors should be opening to opportunities, right? So there's more than one blind kayaker in the world. That's really cool um, that's the way it should work. And I should be proud of that. Right. And, uh, um, and so once you get over those selfish feelings that I think are natural, I hope for all of us at first, you know, (laughs) when you're not, when you're kind of like just giving into the base, you know, side of your, of your personality, right? Like, oh man, (laughs) who's this blind guy? I wonder if he's cheating, you know? And, uh, I wonder how good he is, I bet he's not that good, you know, and you're doing all this <laughs> stuff in your brain, and then you realize that's not the way to be and so uh, I thought it would be cool to meet him and so I invited him down to the Whitewater Center and then I found, like I always do, that that connection is the beautiful thing you know, Lonnie and I connected, we compared notes, we talked about how hard it was to kayak blind, he had certain things he taught me, I had certain things that I taught him, and um we had a beautiful connection, and I felt like um. Uh, in the book, I described it as, like, uh, there's this uh, turtle uh, in the Galapagos. It was, I think his name was Lonely George, and um, he was the last uh, turtle of this species on Earth. And uh, I sort of, as a blind kayaker, felt like Lonely George because, like, I was the only blind guy, you know, out there. Everyone else could see. And when I met... Um, Lonnie, I realized, like, hey, we we got two lonely Georges here. We're two <laughs> we're two turtles uh, turtles like taking off into the you, you know yellow blue yonder together. <laughs> and so it was actually really nice to have a, a buddy uh, with me. And it turned out that Lonnie had stopped where most people stop on a commercial Grand Canyon trip, which is a Diamond Creek. And the Grand Canyon, the official Grand Canyon, actually goes another like sixty miles. So we, I invited him on the trip and I said, Hey, let's like do the whole thing together. We'll both be the first, um, blind people to do this. That'll be really cool. And, um, I'm so glad I made that decision and Lonnie made the trip so special and way better, way better than if I was alone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He seems like an interesting individual.
2: Yeah, he was an interesting. He's a we called him Lonnie LaLondart because he was just oh yeah, gung ho, right? He didn't seem to be scared of anything. In fact, he would always tell me he'd slap me on the shoulder and he'd say, "Eric, um, don't bleed before you're cut." Because I'd be like (laughs) sitting there worrying and stewing over the next rapid. He just had this ability not to bleed before he was cut, you know, just to just to keep a calm mind. And something honestly, I've been struggling to do my whole life, right? In Nepal, the Buddhists they call it. Still mind, you know, you're trying to still your mind that gets so cloudy with all this baggage and you're trying to discipline your mind to just be clear and flowing and in the moment. And um, I thought I had achieved it in climbing. But then when I got to kayaking, I realized, man, it's a whole nother level.
0: That's interesting because that's clearing your mind isn't what comes to my mind when I picture kayaking the Grand Canyon. So that's an interesting um, perspective on that.
2: Well, oh, so much it. of this journey is counterintuitive, you know? It's so counterintuitive, right? Because like that's a counterintuitive, clearing your mind, right? You don't want to fill your mind before a rapid. You want to train so hard that at the top of every rapid, you empty your mind and you're just still and you're just calm. Because if you're defensive or fearful, you won't kayak as well. So the th- crazy part is that if your fear, your fear actually hurts you, You got to paddle aggressively and you got to charge through those rapids. If you're tentative, you're going to get destroyed. And you also have to understand that the river is bigger than you. And so you have to kind of not just take on, but you got to let go. And you got to let go and ride the energy of that force and be okay with this thing that's just a thousand times more powerful than you. And you're just riding the surface of that energy. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk for a long time about how counterintuitive almost everything is when you're doing this kind of stuff.
1: Well, that actually brings me to something I wanted to talk about, which is your trips with wounded warriors, folks with PTSD, anxiety, depression, your expedition to Cotopaxi with the group of 10 or so people. Yeah. When you talk about failures, that that felt like a failure only because you weren't able to reach the summit because of the gap in the trail. But for everyone that went, especially, um, blanking on his name, who was really struggling early on. Um, but he, it kind of changed his life forever after that.
2: Yeah, that was Matt. So yeah, that trip, I mean, so in 2010, Um, we decided it was the 10th year anniversary of our Everest climb. And we decided that as a team, we wanted to get together and do something. And at first it was like, well, maybe we'll do like a Disney cruise or (laughs) we'll go, we'll go play golf (laughs) or something. And then we're like, no, that's not us. Let's go, let's go get back. The mountains have given so much to us as a team. Let's uh, help some folks climb a mountain and see if we could repeat this process. You know, this, this idea that the mountains, that these big experiences can transform you in so many ways. And right then, a lot of the country was struggling with Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were these stories of soldiers coming home shattered, PTSD, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, uh, physically and mentally beat down. And so we spread the word among the VA system. And uh, immediately, we had 10 amazing uh, veterans who signed up to climb a 20,000-foot peak called Lobache, which is next to Everest. And we had this amazing experience, and we found 100% that this mountain experience could um, could really change lives. Like people said, um, I'd been to therapy you know, at the VA for like five, six years, and this experience was better than all of it. It changed me more than all of it. So we knew we were on to something, and we went uh, the next year and built a team and climbed Cotopaxi, which is in Ecuador. Another tall peak and that one didn't go so well. Um, you know you think you like we're on to something but then your second try a lot of times you actually go backwards and I think I don't know maybe we were overconfident, you know maybe we hadn't prepared enough maybe we hadn't really latched on to what the recipe, what the equation really was at the heart of this experience. but yeah we um, we had a lot of conflict, some almost some like physical fights um, along the way. Uh, we had a really hard summit day where um half the team didn't summit um but one guy Matt Burgess he uh almost quit in the very beginning um he was a guy who had gone through uh the military he had he had had an anthrax uh reaction that messed him up he 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 it's just on and on and on this guy had a series of ailments that you like a laundry list of ailments and and disabilities that you couldn't even believe. And the worst one, and he doesn't mind me talking about this, was he was actually uh um at Walter Reed and uh went under this procedure and he was he was actually uh asleep and he got molested. And so this is a guy, right, that you like you wanna if anybody should crawl under a rock and say the world sucks, this is a guy that has every right to do so. It just everything in his life had been taken away from him. Um but he stuck with the program. He said, you know, like Just something kept telling me that I have to go through this process. I have to keep my heart open to this experience because I know that it's healthy. I know it's good for me. I know it's important for me to get out of the darkness and get back into the light. Uh, And he struggled his way to the top of epoxy and stood on top. And he said he experienced that light, you know, that that just beautiful light that like really came into his life. And um he wanted to pass it on to others. And so since that experience, uh Matt has gone on to start this really amazing organization called Freedom Fidos. Uh they train service dogs for veterans, for kids, therapy dogs, you know, that help people in a myriad of ways. And he's trained dozens and dozens of dogs. He has a beautiful facility down in Georgia. Uh, and so Matt's out there changing lives and uh you know I'm pretty psyched because I feel like our team was a part of that. We have since then started a a whole program around no barriers um and we've worked and uh done expeditions with hundreds and hundreds of uh of veterans since that since those first early days so we've really gotten the equation um a lot more honed
0: <laughs> yeah it's it, that your whole the whole project the whole no barriers project is amazing to me because a lot of the people that Seem to participate have had some sort of life altering event that typically seems to have been out of their control. And when they participate in your No Barriers, you know, in these in these activities, you and your team you help them realize that they can take control of their own life, or or yeah, I guess just they have the ability to take control. And sometimes it requires them to maybe take control of just a few days to summit a mountain for them to say, you know, look what I did. I took control and now I can go back to my life and take control of everything. Um, Yeah,
2: it doesn't, I mean, they don't just snap their fingers and change, you know, change is really, really hard, but it's the beginnings of change, you know, for a lot of the teams that we work with Uh, the mountain experience. We take them on this journey. We talk about the process The way I look at No Barriers is kind of a map, you know. Um, It's a messy map, but for sure. And we kind of earlier on in this interview alluded to that map, you know, like what is all the stuff you have to go through to become the best version of yourself, to kind of tap into that potential. And uh, I think along the way, what happens to people, including myself, is that a barrier or a series of barriers get in the way and beat you down and they shove you to the sidelines. And now you're stuck in this dark, safe, miserable place you're not in the river you're not in the current you're in the side of the river what's called the eddy and um we're teaching people to get back into the current which i think is where the real good stuff happens but it's way scarier to be out there uh and so you know a lot of the folks that we work with have shut down a little bit and you know our work is to get them back um into the world and uh yeah understanding what that map looks like and then also understanding that they can impact their future and they can elevate the world in some way. Uh, so Matt is just the perfect story of that. We've had you know hundreds of success stories since then um, of people taking their
1: lives back. It is truly fascinating. One of our early guests was Florence Williams. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she is actually familiar with you and she's actually a big fan of your work. She wrote The Nature Fix and as part of her book, She was trying to figure out how nature impacts the brain and what effects it has on us. And she did uh, using EKGs, other alpha waves to measure cortisol levels, all this kind of stuff. And she took a group of uh, soldiers that had PTSD on a kayaking trip and they all wore helmets. They all kept journals. And it was, I think, a week long. And it truly does Help And it's like scientifically proven now. And I think she kind of is one of the first publicly aware or making the public aware of how much nature and these expeditions really truly help beyond just pills, beyond just therapy. And your work, when I read that in No Barriers, I was like, this is an expansion of what, uh, where Florence expanded upon what you were doing and is proving it
2: yeah well, we've definitely found that as well. I mean it just kind of can rebalance your hormones and uh can kind of help you to refocus and have some space to kind of start over with a great team towards something positive to kind of look inward because there's a you know in the travel adventure experience there's the external world that you're absorbing, but there's also the internal piece of the adventure, so it gives them a chance to get a little bit internal and uh think about what they have to change um A little sidetrack um when you're kayaking a river you you're on the surface of that energy but you realize that under the river is where the real source of that energy is created you know like lots of flows and channels of water like rising up from the bottom and affecting you on the surface and i think that's what these experiences and no barriers are like it gives people a chance to dive down beneath the surface and really understand, like, what are the things that motivate them and are completely sabotaging them? Um, What are their triggers? What are their, you know, what are these things that continually betray them in their lives? So anyway, it's a great chance to really dive in. And um, one of the things we also find that the nature experience is great, but it's only a start. So what we've been trying to do, hopefully, unlike probably unlike a, a lot of organizations is. You know, when they get home from those experiences, sometimes you find yourself back in the same world, the same struggles that you had before, and you can drop off a cliff uh, back into the same stuff that you were experiencing. And that drop can be really big. So what we try to do at No Barriers is we have a social worker who continues to follow our uh, folks for a year or so to keep them on track. They all make a No Barriers pledge. Maybe it's to get a job, or to to get out of the basement, or to lose weight, or to get off um, uh, painkillers, uh, to to start a nonprofit like Matt, um, and then that social worker follows them and keeps them on track, keeps them, tries to keep them in a healthy place, uh, so that they don't drop off that cliff. Uh, because I think experiences can um, can can actually leave us feeling more empty sometimes when you fall back into that same place. And you realize, oh, God, I'm still in the same place, maybe even a worse place, because that trip, that experience gave me such a glimpse of hope. And now I'm back in this dark place. So, yeah, we found that the that the phase three part of the journey, that's when you come home. That is the most crucial piece of uh, of of maybe what we do.
1: I think what you're doing is really, really great because a lot of our veterans are undertreated and I think in some ways neglected and i think they need this kind of attention beyond just one week visit every or a one day visit every month to the va
2: well we think it's working and we're having great success and uh the organization the movement's been exploding um we are uh, a staff of like 35 now and uh we impact like twelve or thirteen thousand people a year. Um, we started out just so grassroots, just a bunch of hacks, like not really knowing what we're doing, and uh, and have built it into something really beautiful with a lot of great success stories.
0: That's
1: incredible. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So so Eric, um, as we get close to wrapping this up, uh, um, I'm curious what what can we expect, you know, for the future, and what are we, what can we follow uh, along with.
2: Um, Well, one is um, it took us actually three years to uh, finish a Grand Canyon film. We actually call it The Weight of Water. We took it from uh, one of the chapters of the book No Barriers and um, it finally got out there into the world. We entered it in the Banff Mountain Film Festival and it won the grand prize. So we're really happy. And now that film is exploding and we're kind of running all over the country screening the film at different festivals. And we'll release it for a week in the theaters uh, in June in, in Boulder. Um, and, uh, it'll go in on demand eventually. So yeah, we're really thrilled by the film and no barriers is just growing. Uh, we have our annual event called our no barrier summit, which, uh, this June 13th through the 16th will be in Lake Tahoe. We'll have probably, uh, close to a thousand people all gathering, uh, in Tahoe to, uh, celebrate this no barriers life. It's veterans and youth and business leaders and families all just coming together just, you know, to, to talk about no barriers, uh, what they can achieve, what the barriers they can break through in their lives. Uh, we have tons of speakers and activities and, uh, beautiful things that we do in nature, incredible innovations. Uh, and so, uh, that really fills my cup every year and then climbing, uh, just still kayaking, but not as a, at a high level, more really back to the mountains. Uh, I'm going back to a peak called Amina Blom, which I failed at 18 years ago. Um, uh, I mean, wanting to climb mountains and big north faces in the Alps. um, I don't know. My tick list of climbing is on and on and on. I will run (laughs) out of cartilage before I run out of adventures. Um, I'm 50 (laughs) now, so um, I still want to hammer as hard as I can for the next, say, 10 years until maybe physically I'll slow down.
0: What has been your favorite mountain in the world to climb?
2: Well, um, I was climbing an ice face one time. It was called Stairway to Heaven. And I was up at like 12 or 13,000 feet in Colorado, climbing this beautiful frozen waterfall. And I felt, believe it or not, the sun on my back. And it was like the glow of the sun on my back. And I was swinging my tools into the ice. Uh, And I just thought, this is like so stunning. This is so beautiful. There's a mountain right near my house right about 40 minute drive behind my house called chief mountain. It's about 11 and feet. And that mountain I've hiked probably a hundred times. Uh, my, both of my kids hiked it um, in my backpack when they were little. And uh, we all do that every year as a family. So that's been a cool mountain because uh, every year I watch or listen, I guess, to my kids grow up.
0: Yeah. And you, you live in Boulder, Colorado. I live in golden, which is uh South of
1: Boulder. Okay. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and we have absolutely I think I speak for both Bob and I. We've loved this conversation and it's such an honor to be able to speak to you after reading your book and I'm really looking forward to seeing The Weight of Water.
2: Yeah, we're um we're going to screen it all around the country so yes, uh, uh check it out for sure. Um and um yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I've done four films now. They're always so hard so we'll we'll see We'll see about more films and books There, you kind of pull your hair out making these, you know, these these beautiful creative things. But maybe at some point I'll 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 dig in and start doing another one.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll be looking forward to it. OK, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric.
2: All right. Great. Wonderful to talk to you guys.
0: OK, so wow. I that's a conversation that I'm going to take with me, I think, for the rest of my life. Absolutely. It, yeah. It, uh, oh man. I mean, there was just so much to unravel, so much to think about and actually getting to speak to him after reading his book and understanding his journey through not only, you know, some of the, the hardest hikes in the entire world, but just his life in general, Um, inspiring, informative. And uh, I, I I'm just happy to have had this experience to do that.
1: Yeah. I was very grateful to be able to talk to him and Uh, At the time that this episode comes out, uh, I've actually been able to go out to dinner and do a hike with him. Uh, My wife and I are going to Denver in a few weeks, and he actually agreed to go on a hike on North Table in Golden, Colorado.
0: Yeah, I'm very jealous of that. You guys are going to have an awesome time. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, we're excited. Rate us on iTunes. It goes like really, it really, really, really goes a long way. It helps us out with the show. It helps us get more notoriety and just helps us climb the ranks of the travel podcast realm as being one of the better ones. And it just helps us get, get picked up easier. So please take some two seconds, do that. Huge help. Uh, we have, we're really active on Instagram, but we are also on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we actually even have a LinkedIn, but if you want to reach out to us, you can do it through any of those platforms. You can send us an email. Some One thing that we're trying to do new is if you have a vacation planned in the future and you want more information on that vacation, we will try to help out by finding someone or a tour company or something or, or, or someone pertaining to that country that can provide you with the information you need to make your trip better. Shoot us an email. Let us know. And we hope you enjoyed the episode and tune in next week.